Good afternoon. Good morning, everybody, depending on which part of this beautiful country that you're in. This is the Rebel News Weekly Roundup. I'm not quite sure what we're calling it anymore. Friday Roundup. There's no intro. We haven't done that yet. Um, but it is your daily. Nope. Sorry. I've got to retrain my language. Your weekly roundup of the news hosted by me, Sheila Gunn-Reed. Uh, thanks for joining us on this inaugural revamped roundup, um, wherein we talk about the week's news, things happening at Rebel News, things happening around the world, completely unscripted, but it also gives you a chance to take control of the show, have your say. So if you're watching us on the censorship platform of YouTube, you can engage in the live chat there, and that's great. Um, but if you want to engage in the live chat and also support the work that we do here at Rebel News completely willingly without the force of Justin Trudeau, as is the case with the mainstream media, might I suggest you bump on over to Rumble or Odyssey. On Rumble, you can leave a paid chat called a Rumble Rant. On Odyssey, it's called a Hyper Chat. If your chat is over the $5 US minimum, we will read your chat on air, um, but don't let that be a bar for participation. So if you leave a chat that's lower than that in financial support, who knows? I just might read it on air. Sometimes if you leave interesting uh, comments and they're free, um, Yankee will send them to me and I will do my best to read them on air. Um, so get talking and uh, take control of the show. And you can support the work that we do here at Rebel News because we'll never take a penny from Justin Trudeau to uh, hold him to account. Like, how could you? <laughs> how could you hold your sugar daddy to account, mainstream media? Anyway, speaking of Justin Trudeau, um, wild, wild uh, thing happening in the news in the United States as is so frequently the case, they're looking upon Canada and Justin Trudeau's censorship with horror, um, Rupa Supramanya of the Free Press, also uh, formerly or sometimes of True North, she testified before uh, the uh, U.S. politicians yesterday, warning them, saying, uh, you know, something she said that was very interesting was, I'm not from the future. I'm just from Canada and I'm here to warn you because what's hap what could happen in the United States is already happening in Canada with regard to free speech. Let's go to this clip of Rupa at her testimony before the, I think it's the weaponization of social media uh, committee. Isn't it interesting they have a committee named that and in Canada, it's just completely normal that Justin Trudeau weaponizes social media against his political enemies, which are so often independent journalists in this country. Let's hear it from Rupa. The computer's thinking in the office. Let's go to uh, this video of DeSantis just um, axe murdering <laughs> California governor Gavin Newsom. Um, it, oh, I, apparently we have bad connection in um, in the studio. So we're sorting that out. Um, but in the meantime, I'll keep talking because what would be an inaugural show without technical difficulties? Um, 
anyways, I'll, I'll, I guess, uh, talk about what Rupa was talking about in the in the United States. Now, in the United States, uh, Rupa is treated as an expert on independent journalism and Justin Trudeau's censorship of not just independent journalists, but of just regular people. And there are different ways that Justin Trudeau has been censoring regular people. Some of it is through his uh, censorship bills. So C-11, C-18, controlling what you can see, say, and do on the internet and giving the uh, broadcast regulator control over the internet. Um, But also he censors people by these other means, as in if you say something wrong, if you support financially a protest movement that Justin Trudeau disagrees with, you can have your bank account frozen. So why don't you just shut up a little bit? And that a lot of that happens. People say, I want to, I I want to get involved. I want to support things, but I'm worried about what the government is going to do to me if I do. And Rupa testified to that. Uh, and I think we've got our technical difficulties sorted out. So let's roll uh, Rupa testifying in the United States. I'd like all of you to think of me as a time traveler from the not too distant future, coming back to the present to offer you a glimpse of what could lie ahead for America. I live in a time in which, in the name of fairness, you can't share the stories you write for my news publication on social media. I live in a time in which, in the name of the common good, you can be kicked out of your bank and online payment system simply for expressing the wrong political views. I live in a time in which, in the name of social justice, you can commit a serious crime but get a more lenient sentence if you happen to be the right skin color. I live in a time in which, in the name of safety, you can be arrested for exercising your right to peaceful protest if you happen to be protesting the wrong thing. Of course, I'm not a real time traveler. I just live in Canada. Americans, and perhaps those in this chamber, surely think Canadians are too nice, we're too polite to embrace this sort of proto-authoritarianism. But it's more accurate to say that our niceness made us susceptible to the new authoritarianism, undermining the foundations of our liberal democracy. If it sounds like I'm overstating things, allow me to share three stories that illustrate this creeping authoritarianism. First, a few months ago, I reported a story from my publication, The Free Press, about a high school principal in Toronto who had been humiliated in front of his colleagues by a DEI consultant. The principal's crime, besides being white and male, was that he objected to the consultant's assertion that Canada is a less just society than America. The humiliation he experienced ultimately led him to commit suicide. I wanted to share that story on Facebook. When I tried to, I was barred from posting it. I received a message that stated, in response to Canadian government legislation, news content can't be shared. I was confused. Then I remembered the recently adopted Online News Act. The law forces social media companies to pay online media companies to link to their content. Facebook, instead of paying for that content, barred its users from posting it. Government officials insist that this is only a matter of fairness, a way of making sure that media companies are compensated for the news they report. But really, this new law props up legacy media dinosaurs like the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Bell Media, and other companies, which are subsidized by the federal government, and all of which can be counted on to echo Justin Trudeau's worldview and toe the party line. Not being able to post was annoying, but it wasn't the end of the world for me. I don't depend on Facebook for my income. The same cannot be said of Christopher Curtis, which brings me to my second story. Chris is a 38-year-old renegade journalist, entrepreneur in Montreal who runs a digital newsletter called The Rover. He calls himself woke. 
You might think that he's exactly the kind of journalist the Trudeau government would elevate. He's on the political left. He publishes stories about the plight of the homeless and police brutality. The problem is that, unlike government-funded news companies, independent media companies are truly independent, which means they report stories that don't comport with whatever the government wants them to report. For example, in September 2020, the Rover reported a story on federal mistreatment of Mohawk Indians. This month, it published a story about migrant workers who had been abused and trafficked with the unwitting help of the federal government. But under this new law, the Rover can't build its audience. Unable to post content on Facebook or Instagram, the newsletter can't reach new, new subscribers. It cannot grow its subscriber base. This is a slow death, says Chris. For now, he's unsure how he's going to support his partner and their three-year-old daughter. He's thinking of going back into construction, which takes me to my third story. Danny Bulford, now 41, used to be an officer in the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the equivalent of the FBI. For years, he was a sniper in the Prime Minister's protective detail. Then in 2021, Danny quit because he didn't want to get his COVID vaccination. In early 2022, truckers descended on Ottawa to protest new COVID vaccine requirements. Danny joined them. The government declared a state of emergency. Danny, like many demonstrators, was arrested and later released without charge. Then something chilling happened. On February 17, 2022, Danny logs into his bank accounts, starting with his checking and savings accounts at the CIBC. But instead of seeing his balance, he had about $160,000 in there. The only thing he saw was a dash. Then he logs onto Scotiabank to see about an additional checking account. Once again, there was no sign of any money in his account. Finally, he logs into the Royal Bank of Canada, which handles his MasterCard account, and he was told he had no access to any credit. Danny's wife was also unable to access any of these accounts. Suddenly, they were worrying about how to cover their next mortgage payments and how to feed their three kids. That is what it means to be debanked. Debanking has been one of the Trudeau government's no, weapons of that's choice good. since 20. She goes on for about six minutes there. Um, but that is Rupa's testimony before the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government telling our American friends what can happen to you when your federal government weaponizes itself in a partisan manner against its own citizens. And that's what we've lived through at least the last three and a half years. But I would suggest far sooner, if you were a Christian, um, when Justin Trudeau took power, he started weaponizing the federal government almost immediately against Christian organizations who simply wanted to qualify for a summer jobs grant for summer students to run things like soup kitchens and summer camps for underprivileged children. Justin Trudeau made those church organizations sign an attestation to the Liberal Party's values on transgenderism, reproductive rights, which is just a euphemism for abortion. And many of them, in good conscience, could not sign it. And so they lost funding for their programs for the underprivileged and in the name of ensuring, I guess, complete and total ideological homogeneity in this country, Justin Trudeau punished the most vulnerable and underprivileged people in the country who would access these soup kitchens and um, these summer camps, uh, stripping these people of opportunities that they wouldn't normally have. So uh, this is we're at the end stages of weaponization of the federal government against Canadians and Americans are just sort of knocking on that door and i hope i hope they don't go down this path uh luckily they have a first amendment which should go a little further in protecting them than our charter of rights and freedoms 
does here. Um, in other news happening in the United States, I started talking about this, but we had connection problems. Um, yesterday, a uh, very bizarre thing broadcast on uh, Fox News. Bizarre because you don't often see like a debate between the left and the right, except in during elections. And those elections debates are just insufferable. You actually don't learn all that much. You just learn it. Who's good at talking in front of a camera and sticking to their talking points. You don't actually see like an actual good examination of what people think and feel on an issue and where their ideology truly is. But we saw a little bit of that last night. Like I said, it was broadcast on Fox News and it was dubbed as the like blue state, red state debate. And you had, I think, the most successful red state Republican state governor in modern history, Ron DeSantis, debating Gavin Newsom. The I mean, depends on how you govern and who you're asking, but I think he would be considered a successful Democrat governor if you asked a Democrat, because he's like a bit Trudeau-esque, really woke, really metrosexual, if people still use that word. And so he's popular with Democrats, but he's absolutely destroying California with his woke policies, Um, you know, the drug and crime out of control there, mass outflow of people to... uh, red states like Florida and Texas from California. Um, And uh, DeSantis points out exactly that in this little debate clip. Um, James Woods had a great remark. Thankfully, they don't don't impose laws uh, in California because DeSantis would be serving time for murder (laughs) if he did. So let's watch this. So I was talking to a fella who had made the move from California uh, to Florida, and he was telling me that Florida is much better governed, uh, safer, better budget, uh, lower taxes, all this stuff. And he's really happy with the quality of life. And then he paused and he said, you know, by the way, I'm Gavin Newsom's father-in-law. So we do count Gavin's in-laws as some of the people that have fled California um, and come to the state of Florida. And so I was talking. That's pretty good. That's pretty good when you can quote your political enemies in-laws as victims of your political enemies policies. Um, anyways, it was it's just very interesting. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, I think both of them are vying for the uh, nomination for the respective parties. I don't think either one of them is going to be the president. I think there are roles in a Trump administration. I think just based on the polling, I'm not saying who I think should win, but just based on the polling, I think there's a very serious role for DeSantis in a Trump administration, um, attorney general, perhaps. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I thought it was kind of an interesting thing to do in between election cycles uh, to show us the difference between a Democrat-run state and a GOP-run state. It was kind of fun, and uh, DeSantis did a great job. And I I don't just say that because uh, I like him. I like him, but um, it's pretty cheeky. I think at one point he held up a map of, like, the places where you could find feces in California. Uh, So, anyways, no, it was good. Um, 
moving along, let's talk about uh, things closer to home for me, Alberta, and Notley's NDP. So Rachel Notley, for those of you who don't know, she was our premier through fluke and happenstance and a confluence of just a perfect storm of impossible, impossible uh, circumstances that brought her to power here in Alberta a far left socialist radical in charge of the most conservative place in this country. And uh, thankfully she lost the last election, no matter how much the mainstream media were cheering for her and making people believe that she actually had a chance of winning. And um, the more, the more we learn about the NDP post that election cycle, the more I'm just grateful. And I didn't think I could be more grateful that they didn't win. For example, there's this exclusive story. It was broken by us here at Rebel News uh, through the great reporting of Alex Dollywall, one of our reporters. The Notley NDP hid a staffer's prostitution scandal to better their elections chances. Um, I did a video on this. And uh, Ben Aldrit. He's an NDP staffer. Uh, he, in 2018, in late 2018, I think it was December 2018, he was caught in a prostitution sting. And uh, he appeared in court in January of 2019. So just a few short months before the 2019 election, which saw Jason Kenney of the United Conservative Party win in a landslide. But the NDP kept his arrest for prostitution quiet because they knew that it would hurt their election chances. And Ben Aldrit was in, in communications at the time he was with uh, the health minister, Sarah Hoffman, uh, as the associate chief of staff to her. He was put on a leave of absence after his arrest. He was allowed to resolve his exploitation of vulnerable and possibly racialized women charge uh, through alternative measures. So I don't know, I guess he got to pick up garbage um, for to make his charge go away. And uh, then they brought him back into the fold. These avowed feminists in the NDP, you know, they accuse their political enemies of being against women and not caring about women's rights, but not, they protected a man in their midst who is taking advantage of a vulnerable woman, exploiting her body. Uh, and so anyways, they put him on uh, leave of absence. Then they bring him back in 2021. Not only do they bring him back, sounds like he got a promotion. So he was quoted um, as an NDP caucus spokesperson in 2021. And then by 2022, he's the director of communications. And they hid this scandal through two election cycles, but Rebel News received leaked documents, um, court documents about his charge. Now, have you, oh, I should also point out that this guy is just so perfectly woke. He's exactly as woke as you think he is. Um, Aldrit on his social media. Yeah, I mean, he's just a, 
a feminist through and through as these people tend to be right. Justin Trudeau, he's a feminist, but he's just groping all the female journalists left and right. Fall firing all the pesky women who try to put him in his place. Um, Aldrit uh, on his Twitter bio, he offers his preferred pronouns. He, him, in case the uh, beard and mustache weren't a dead giveaway. He calls himself uh, a parent of a child rather than the father of a son or daughter, right? Like he has to um, make sure that there's no uh, gender whatsoever. And he calls, calls himself a spouse rather than a husband. And I just came to a startling realization here. I, I've been saying all along that he was exploiting a vulnerable woman. But I'm making an assumption about his sexual predilections, aren't I? I mean, he has gone out of his way to anti-gender all of his language. Um, maybe it was a vulnerable dude. Not that it makes a difference, but like I'm making some sweeping assumptions here that I possibly couldn't. You know, an alternate before he was, he tweeted about, I went back through his social media accounts again, as I tend to do. And I saw that he was tweeting about, you know, the United Conservatives not caring about racialized uh, women. And I thought, who do you think works in the prostitution trade? Racialized women. Um I guess he cared about them just a little bit too much, maybe. Anyway, but the reason I'm telling you about all of this is uh, because you have definitely not heard any of this in the mainstream media, right? If this were uh, Danielle Smith, uh, chief of staff or director of communications being caught up in a prostitution sting, could you imagine, could you imagine the amount of resignations, heads rolling, questions at press conferences? It doesn't matter what the announcement of the press conference would be. You would be completely consumed by this sex scandal. And yet, here we are, only independent media talking about this, which is an argument for independent media because it's very clear that the... Uh, I was going to say the opposition media, but maybe that's actually actually accurate. The mainstream media is never, ever going to talk about this. They've completely ignored it. They haven't even asked a single question to Rachel Notley about this. I guess as long as they remain inept, I will have job security forever. You know, the mainstream media sure want people like me to go away, but I will never go away. <laughs> as, long, as long as they refuse to do their jobs. Um, speaking of uh, refusing to do their jobs, um, again, mainstream media completely abdicating responsibility on another story that Rebel News picked up. And again, this is from me, and I don't mean to be talking so much about my own work, but uh, this is kind of a fun story to do, as you can tell from the thumbnail there. Rachel Notley, she spread so much disinformation. I. I and polite when I call it disinformation, it was just shameless lies about the curl spill that the chief scientist of the province had to step in and issue a statement. So for those of you who don't know, um, you can watch my video on the Rebel News YouTube. Curl is an imperial oil site near Fort McMurray, Alberta. And they very recently had a spill of, I'm going to be honest here, muddy water. 
Um, so the it's 670 liters of treated water that escaped a settling pond into the Muskeg River. They reported, this is the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation who also monitors the site on their own, reported 140 milligrams of suspended solids um, in the water. Suspended solids sounds scary, but it just means dirt in the water. And because we have legal limits for these sorts of things on suspended solids, um, it was reported. Um, so anyways, Rachel Notley takes to social media and the legislature and starts talking about how this is a toxic spill from a tailings pond, saying that all, now it's not muddy water caused by runoff and rain and snow and must literal muskeg um that it is arsenic mercury contaminating the groundwater and if you've said that it is not those things she wants an apology she wanted an apology from the environment minister rebecca schultz she wanted an apology i think from brian jean who is the ucp mla for the region who said ah uh, it's mud like it's mud chill out it's mud um and uh the NDP, uh, Rachel Notley, but also uh, another MLA, uh, I can't remember her name, D doesn't, doesn't matter. <laughs> but anyways, um, they prattled on about how the First Nation was being poisoned by arsenic and that the Alberta Energy Regulator didn't care and Imperial Oil didn't care and the Alberta government didn't care. And this was systemic racism because all the First Nations people were going to be poisoned in perpetuity. Uh, thanks to mercury, arsenic, all kinds of carcinogens poisoning the groundwater. It got so out of control that I think it was, what is today? Friday? I think it was Wednesday, Tuesday. The No, Wednesday. Uh, the chief scientist of the province <laughs> had to come out and say, uh, can we just uh, calm down and quit lying, everybody? He stated that... Uh, and the chief scientist of the province is Jonathan Thompson. He stated that um, if there were any uh, reports of hydrocarbons and toluene in subsamples, it was false positives due to lab error, that this water in this region is some of the most intensively tested in the entire region, that the 140 milligrams of suspended solids were dirt and nothing else. Um, and that this was not tailings pond runoff and there is no arsenic. In fact, he noted that all the drinking water in the region is some of the cleanest in the province. And uh, he said there have been no exceedances in arsenic measured in the drinking water whatsoever. And that not only do they monitor the drinking water, but ambient surface water around the region. Like Rachel Notley just lied and lied and lied to the point where the nonpartisan chief scientists had to say, stop it. And not only that, he pointed out that the water quality tests for the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo, which is would have been the affected region if a region were affected and it wasn't. Uh, they're all posted online. <laughs> so at any step of the way, while 
anybody was, you know, for some reason believing Rachel Motley, they could have just went to the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo website, checked the water quality tests, which are posted publicly and said, actually, I think, I think they're, everything's fine, but no, Rachel Notley, um, she was lying just to scare people. And uh, she continues to do that. She did it during COVID. She's doing it right now um, to the old people as the province of Alberta is considering uh, withdrawing ourselves from the Canada pension plan. She's whipping up audiences of old people uh, to be scared about their futures. Um, so anyways, we dodged a real bullet here in Alberta and I hope we continue to. Uh, we should hit an ad break so that we can go back into the next portion of the show. Ship away, folks. David Menzies here with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'm inviting you to set sail on the high seas with the boldest, most unapologetic crew around, the Rebel News team. Picture this. You, me, Ezra, Sheila, Alexa, and the fearless leader of the Freedom Trucker Convoy herself, Tamara Leach, cruising the Caribbean from March 23rd to 30th, 2024. Imagine the sun, the sea, and a boatload of free speech enthusiasts just like yourself. We've already got dozens of Rebel diehards signed up. Are you in? Please go to rebelnewscruise.com. That's rebelnewscruise.com to discover all the details and, of course, to sign up. Now, this isn't your run-of-the-mill holiday, folks. Oh, no, we're talking about a full-blown escape from the dreary wintertime, coupled with the chance to dive into some real talk. No-holds-barred conversations, fiery debates, and a chance to rub shoulders with fellow rebels. We'll be living it up on Holland America's MS New Amsterdam, Trust me, it is a top-notch ship. And it's not just about enjoying the luxury, the amenities, the excursions. Every evening, we're throwing exclusive cocktail receptions, dinners with our Rebel News team, and panels that'll really get those brain gears grinding. And here's the kicker. Tamara Leach will be dishing out a live music performance on board the ship. This is a truly exclusive one-of-a-kind experience. Space is very limited for this epic journey, so don't delay. Secure your spot now. Go to rebelnewscruise.com and get the scoop on the onboard experience, the excursions, and of course, to reserve your spot. We can't wait to welcome you aboard and show you how we rebels like to party. Alrighty then, I've got to get back to, I don't know, chasing down some corrupt politicians. So cheers for now. P.S. Oh, wait, one more thing. We set sail March 23rd to 30th, 2024 from Fort Lauderdale in the free state of Florida. We'll be hitting up jaw-dropping spots like the Bahamas, Jamaica, the Cayman Islands, and Mexico. Please don't miss the chance to hang out with us, your Rebel News crew, Tamara Leach and fellow Rebel enthusiasts. Again, go to rebelnewscruise.com and reserve your spot. I can't wait to see everyone on board. You know, I wonder just how much of David Menzies we're going to see. <laughs> because I, uh, I've seen a lot of them lately. 
um, especially him in that leotard when he checked himself into the Toronto Cat Show to prove a point about trans speciesism. But I think it's going to be fun. And boy, I don't know if you caught it. Um, and you can still uh, take a look at the replay on the Rebel News YouTube channel, uh, Tamara Leach. Um, she put on one heck of a performance at the Freedom Train. Uh, just incredible. Um, she's just so multi-talented. I mean, she strikes fear in the hearts of the stupidest people in the country. And uh, she can perform, just sing her heart out uh, and inspire a peaceful resistance movement. There's nothing that little lady can't do. Um, let's get into, um, speaking of resistance movements, apparently there are only some kind that are acceptable in this country. Um, and others, I mean, they can just get away with whatever they want. So the convoy peaceful movement against COVID restrictions uh, did their best not to uh, inconvenience the people of Ottawa who make me think that they are just uh, a bunch of boring bureaucrats there. Horn honking sent them into a tizzy. Um, but these anti-Israel protesters over the last couple of days have been blocking rail lines first in Saskatchewan, and then second in Montreal. And I'm reliably informed by um, politicians that blocking critical infrastructure can get you sent to jail for a very long time. Now, Tamara Leach never blocked any critical infrastructure, but she spent 50 days in jail for nonviolent mischief charges. Um, What's going to happen to these people? Probably nothing because their politics are right. Um, so we've got this video from Alexa Lavoie. She was on the scene in Montreal this morning. She was attempting to report on the anti-Israel protesters blocking the rail lines in Montreal, but the police were blocking her from reporting. Let's show that. Donc, eux, ils ont le droit de bloquer le train, mais moi, j'ai pas le droit d'aller les filmer. Madame, je vais juste vous demander de rester sur le trottoir, c'est tout ce que je veux. Non, mais vous voyez qu'il y a quand même, là, une inconsistance de la part de la police, là. Hein? So, the police is actually blocking us to go and film them. They are currently lots of anti-Israel supporters that are blocking the CN train trail where I'm actually going to show you. I don't know if you remember, but they did the same on the 29th of November in Saskatchewan. And now they are doing it in Montreal, in Verdun. I'm going to show you the other side. Since the police are not allowing no no person to get close. And what we saw so far is like the police is not really intervening. And we know that the Emergencies Act was deployed during the Freedom Convoy for less than that since the beginning of this conflict. A lot of critical infrastructure were disrupted. 
Okay, so now I cannot see them. They're a little bit too far. Going to see if I can. Ah, we see a police there. There is a lot of police vehicle. And I cannot have a view on them. But you can see them. More at urbanews.com. So the police did more to clear the journalists away than they did to clear away the anti-Semitic protesters who are blocking critical infrastructure and actually hurting the Canadian economy. Hmm. You know, have they considered the Emergencies Act for these Hitler youth that are plaguing the streets of Canada right now? chanting genocidal things, blocking critical infrastructure? Have we ever considered where their funding is coming from? Have we considered that maybe they are being funded by the world's largest state sponsor of terror, Iran? Have we considered that? Have we bothered to look? Um, if you were a farmer and you gave 20 bucks to the Freedom Convoy, you very well may have had your financing through Farm Credit Canada denied. We know they did that. Um, but you can block a CN rail line in one of Canada's largest cities and uh, the police will do their best to keep the journalists away from you and not clear the tracks. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Okay. Uh, we have uh, another video from Alexa. Sounds like they were making arrests at some point. What do you want to bet these guys don't spend 50 days in jail? <laughs> I bet they were caught and released um, as quickly as the cuffs came on. Let's show that. I wanted to see more clubbing. <laughs> I'm joking. I, I'm not a fan of police brutality. But if, again, if those were Freedom Convoy protesters singing the national anthem, they would have been clubbed like baby seals. But these people, they block the rail lines. Um, they're chanting for genocide. And they're getting cuffed up against the wall. And like I said, I bet you they'll be out by this afternoon. Um, such is the state of the Canadian legal system. Uh, let's bump ahead. Uh, speaking of and who's funding anti-Semites, as it turns out, the Canadian government did. And now they want their money back after uh, news broke of it. So this is from the National Post. Um, Ottawa is taking legal action to recoup anti-racism funds from Laith 
Maroof. Um, Laith Maroof was a senior consultant uh, with uh, an organization funded by Canadian Heritage. And uh, he was post, he, they say he was accused of, but he was definitely posting anti-Semitic material online. He was with the Community Media Advocacy Center and it granted the Canadian Heritage granted the group more than $122,000 for projects to help combat racism. However, uh, the phone call was coming from inside the house. <laughs> now, uh, Maruth was making anti-Semitic statements, racist statements online. And uh, now they're, I guess, suing him for the money back. Uh, so I wonder what he did with that money. He said things like uh, the Jews are white supremacists and um, <laughs> what a joke. Uh, one post read, and again, I'm reading verbatim what Laith Maroof, the anti-racism expert funded by Canadian Heritage to the tune of $122,000 said about Jews. And uh, it read, you know, all those loudmouth bags of human feces, a.k.a. the Jewish white supremacists, when we liberate Palestine and they have to go back to where they came from, they will return to being low-voiced bitches of their Christian, secular, white supremacist masters. And this stuff was all posted publicly. It wasn't like he was saying this behind closed doors. It's on his Twitter account. Um but again, the federal government did more vetting of farmers who gave a Tim's card to Freedom Convoy truckers than they did to these people they were doling out uh, Canadian tax dollars to. So um, if Laith Maruth were a decent man, he would give the money back, but a decent man would not have said those things. So here we are. Uh, it's going to end up before the courts and it's going to cost way more money than $122,000, I think, to recoup this stuff from Leith. Uh, he should just give the money back. But again, if he were a decent human being, he A, wouldn't be working in uh, anti-racism for the federal government <laughs> and B, saying anti-Semitic things online. Um, let's uh, talk about this story from Westlock, Alberta. Now, for those of you who don't know where Westlock, Alberta is and what Westlock, Alberta is, Westlock, Alberta is a farming community just north of me. It's about an hour away from the city. Fewer than 5,000 people live there. It is intensely rural, a proud farming community, so conservative, surrounded by Hutterite communities. Uh, I think they had the world's largest harvest there at one point. Give you an idea about who and what we're dealing with, hey? Um, but let this be a lesson to conservatives that we must not only pay attention to municipal politics, vote in our municipal elections, but quite possibly run for municipal politics because the left is taking over municipal politics, even in these ultra conservative rural communities. Uh, last summer, in the summer of pride, season of pride. Apropos of very nearly almost nothing, the highly progressive town council in this ultra-conservative community, I guess everybody was too busy farming to run for election there. Um, 
but they decided we're going to let the local gay straight alliance of the high school come along and paint a sidewalk rainbow. And nobody wanted it except the activists on council and the gay straight alliance. And it caused a major uproar in town, like major um, locals got a petition going. They presented it to council and said like, Hey, we didn't want this. We don't, we never asked for any of this. And it wasn't like they were against gays. Like, I don't think anybody's actually all that against gays. I think we just, everybody should just be left alone. Um, but they presented this petition to the council. Of course they brought, by the way, I should say, uh, they put, there was outrage once people heard about the decision to paint the sidewalk uh, rainbow, which is why the news left the city of Edmonton to go all the way to sleepy Westlock, because this became like ground zero for the culture war for like a week. Uh, the NDP MLAs from Edmonton plotted uh, Westlock on their GPS, changed out of their Birkenstocks in case there were gravel roads and went all the way to Westlock to show support for the gay community population, I bet, 10 <laughs> in uh, Westlock. They even trucked in a liberal MP, Randy Boissonneau from Edmonton, um, for some reason. I mean, the, again, their, their MP there is a conservative. It's not Randy Boissonneau. I think it's, uh, shoot. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but their conservative MP is conservative. Oh, it's Arnold Viersen, if I if I recall correctly. So super conservative. He's a social conservative, um, which is in line with the culture of the town. And so this became like ground zero of the culture wars for uh, a week. They got their way. They painted the sidewalk, but the people there were mad. And so they got a petition going. They presented their petition. And instead of the council reacting to the petition um they're taking it they're they're not going to react they're actually going to do the right thing here because um the council seems to be out of line with the people they're letting it go to a plebiscite which is a local vote um so they have time to campaign and basically what the people want the new law to say is there will be no sidewalks painted anything other than white um, in Westlock and there will be no flying of flags that are not, uh, you know, like the municipal flag, the provincial flag, the Canadian flag, nothing else. Keep your politics off the municipal infrastructure basically is what the new law would say. And the municipality is putting it to the people to have their say, because it's very clear that they weren't listening to the people the first time they were just doing whatever they wanted. Um, because uh, they felt like they could. And um, I th I'm happy. I'm happy to see everybody involved in this bad decision uh, end up with a bit of a reality check. Um, invaders from Edmonton came to uh, cause a stir. Um, but in, at the end of the day, the people will have their say. And I'm sure, I'm sure that this new... Uh, this new law will will pass local plebiscite and I can be happier for it. Yeah, keep your politics off the municipal infrastructure. I think that's that's a reasonable solution to all of this. Nobody gets anything. <laughs>
you know, like no, no pro-life flags, no trans flags, just leave everything alone. Keep your politics off the publicly funded municipal infrastructure and I'd be happy. Okay. Let's go on to the next story, which I have to key up out of the corner of my eye. Um, I think let's go directly into um, this new farm law passing, and then we'll go into the commissioner's report. Uh, so this is something that I've covered for quite some time, again, because I'm a farmer, but also I'm very interested in property rights and the lies of animal activists. Uh, for me, my real, look, I've sort of been anti-animal rights activist since, well, forever. Um, and I, I believe it, it has to do with my religious worldview, but also that I don't equate animal lives to those of humans. Humans are here. Animals are down here. I love my dog. I like my cat. Um, but people are here. Animals are down here and I'll eat them and I'll also, uh, take care of them. So I think it was 2018, uh, animal rights activists invaded a Hutterite farm in uh, south of Calgary, anyway, a Jumbo Valley Hutterite farm. Uh, one of those animal rights activists was actually a videographer for Global News. And it, this is a turkey farm, and they were protesting the treatment of turkeys leading up to, you know, slaughter processing for Christmas. And uh, the thing about these turkey farms and so many farms, including hog farms, is that they are biosecure facilities. Uh, these animals are, you know, subject to uh, catching diseases that will wipe out the entire flock, like hundreds, thousands of animals. And you just have these turkey invaders just there. Um, and so I had gone down to uh, talk to these turkey farmers about, you know, what it's like to have your home invaded. And I should point out to you that um, Hutterites are, it's a collective farm, multiple families live there. Um, and so when you invade their farm, you're actually invading their home, like their, their kids are there. Ezra went to cover the court appearances of these invaders, he flew out in a snowstorm. And then subsequent to that, there's um, an animal rights activist who was run over by a truck after she ran out onto the road to try to give water to pigs that were headed to slaughter. And, um, you know, the animal rights activists were saying, you know what, she was murdered by a trucker who has to live the rest of his life with having this fatality on his heart because she ran out into traffic to give pigs bound for water or bound for slaughter water. And, you know, it's this is incessant problem with animal rights activists invading our farms, which are also our homes, um, and spreading lies about farmers. And we have the right to do our business unmolested by activists. And we should be able to, uh, you know, not worry about animal rights activists um, contaminating our herds with diseases, which could devastate us financially. So this farmer's rights bill passed in the House of Commons. Guess who voted against it? Uh, the NDP. And it threatens uh, activists with $25,000 in individual fines if you trespass onto a farm and $100,000 for the organizations which may encourage it. So 
this law will get them coming and going. And I couldn't be happier about it because it is not just about the rights of farmers to do our jobs and feed this country, but uh, this is a property rights issue. Our farms are also our homes. I'm a fifth generation farmer and uh, my family has taken care of this land for 120 years this year, in fact. And uh, I think we do a good job of it. And we just want to provide affordable, nutritious food to not just our communities, but the country and the rest of the world. And these animal rights activists, look, if they want to eat lettuce all day long, great, great. It's not my problem. Leave us alone. Um, and they, they don't have the right to do extra governmental inspections of our property. Um, imagine somebody just barging in to your home and and invading it. Well, that's what farmers have to live with um, from these animal rights activists. And I'm just so happy to see that the liberals actually voted along with the conservatives on this issue. And the NDP, of course, voted against it because they say it violates the rights of protesters. Protest on the on the road <laughs> outside my property. Don't come on my property. That's all, that's all we were asking for. And we had to increase the fines because they just won't listen. Um, let's talk about another property rights issue while we're at it. As we get to the end of the show, um, Ottawa uh, continues their attack on our property rights through their imposition of gun laws. Um, Ottawa wants to pass Bill C-21 in the coming weeks and ban high-capacity firearms chargers. So Public Safety Minister Dominic LeBlanc said gun manufacturers should no longer be able to sell modifiable chargers that hold up to 30 bullets. And he wants to pass C-21 in the coming weeks. So C-21 um, basically ratifies the government's um, order in council, which banned at the time it was 1500 models of popular shotguns and long guns, including a 410 bird gun as an assault rifle. Um, they want to codify that into law. And since then it has ballooned to closer to 2000. Um, within that, there's a buyback uh, program <laughs> buyback as though the government ever owned these guns in the first place um but here's the thing they're they're trying to make this stuff double illegal like you cannot um you already can't have a magazine that holds that many bullets that's already illegal it's like trying to make murder double illegal um but uh they're basically saying that people are in their basements modifying this stuff if they are, there's already a law that deals with that. Um, you know, like he's just how dumb these people are. Um, Dominic LeBlanc, who's probably never gone, gone moose hunting in his entire life, says the bill aims more broadly to ban military type weapons that are not used for hunting. When we go moose hunting, he says, we are not going to war on moose, said LeBlanc, who clarified he wants to pass Bill C-21 in the coming weeks. Uh, we want to ensure that there is no escape, allowing gun owners and industry to do indirectly what they cannot do directly. Adding the federal government would add resources to provincial and municipal police forces to carry out the law. Good luck to you in Alberta. Um, in Alberta, our Premier Daniel Smith has said that she will not be directing our provincial uh, RCMP, who are on contract with the provincial government, to allocate resources to molesting uh, law-abiding Canadian gun owners. Uh, 
I think our cops definitely have better things to do than kicking in the doors of their friends and neighbors for the crime of lawfully acquiring something that the government now says is illegal. And despite all this constant gun legislation, when you know it, the violent crime rate has gone up, uh, I think is the highest it's been in years, if not decades, and it has gone up four years in a row. So since Justin Trudeau started bringing out his increased gun control legislation, guess what? Crime has gone up. Um, so maybe we could do something different instead of going after uh, duck hunters and moose hunters. Um, maybe, just maybe, we could focus on gangs, the border, drug trafficking, human trafficking. Uh, but no, no, it's, uh, it's just... Joe in Saskatchewan who wants to put some holes in some geese. He's the bad guy in this country, according to Dominic LeBlanc. Uh, all right. Quickly coming to the end of the show, I think I've almost gotten to all the topics. But uh, lastly, the commissioner's report for the National Citizens Inquiry um, was just published this week. It's available now. Uh, for those of you who don't know, although we did cover it quite intensely here at Rebel News, the National Citizens Inquiry was a citizen-led inquisition into the government's over-response to COVID-19. And this was done because we, we could not trust the government to examine their own actions responsibly and then decide um, what they should do differently. We saw how Justin Trudeau investigates himself. He appoints a family friend, <laughs> David Johnston, to investigate and find that there was actually no need for investigation. <laughs> so citizens took this upon themselves and um, they heard from over 300 witnesses who told them what it was like during the COVID-19 crisis. And I say crisis, but I mean the crisis of civil liberties. and. Um, some of these people were doctors. Some of these people were people who were damaged by the vaccine they were forced to take um, to inoculate themselves against unemployment. Some of these people were business owners. Um, some of these people were activists who were arrested. Um, and so that's out this week. And um, my friend Tamara Ugolini, um, she did an incredible report examining it. Um, you can download the report at the National Citizens Inquiry.ca. And uh, maybe let's just take a quick uh, little look at it if we could bring it up. I know you had it on the screen there. You just look at the executive summary. By the way, do you think anybody in the federal government is going to ever read this? Do you think, for example, here in Alberta, you think Jason Kenney? is going to read this. I don't think so. Um, but uh, let's just take a look at the, perhaps the executive summary. Thank you very much. I'm just uh, getting to it on my screen here. Yikes. Sorry, guys. Yikes. Okay. So, um, given the enormity of these mandates and the resultant consequences, these circumstances demanded a comprehensive, transparent, and objective national inquiry into the appropriateness and efficacy of these interventions to determine what lessons can be learned for the future. 
No Canadian government has shown an appetite for fulsome review of the measures it implemented. It also questioned whether municipal, federal, and provincial governments would or could conduct a fair and unbiased review simply because of their own actions and responses to COVID-19, which should be under investigation. Um, what's important here is that, um, that there's an official accounting of what happened to this country. I don't think any politicians are going to read this and adopt it, except perhaps Alberta and Saskatchewan, who have shown, and perhaps New Brunswick, although I'm not sure, they were pretty hard on COVID, just ask Pastor Phil Hutchins. But I think that most politicians are not going to read this. And I think they just want this all to be put behind us. But I think that it is important that there is an official record of what happened to Canadians, that these witnesses were heard and that future generations can look back on this. Um, until such time as Justin Trudeau scrubs the internet forever, um, I, this will exist as a historical encyclopedia of all the terrible dark things the government did to us in the name of public health. and. Um, I, I hope that website, nationalcitizensinquiry.ca, lives forever. Because some of those testimonies were just absolutely heart-wrenching. Um, and I hope, I hope one day some of the politicians involved bring themselves to listen to the damage that they did and uh, do some soul-searching. But, uh, you know, if you're the kind of person who would do these things to people, I can't imagine that you'd do that. Uh, I think we have one... One chat. Okay, great. One chat. We made it through the first hour of this, by the way. So thank you so much. We had some technical difficulties at the beginning and I have to retrain my language to say that this is uh, not Friday or not a weekly show, but or rather not a daily show, but a weekly show. See, I'm still struggling. Anyways, got one from Memory Hole because it's five bucks and says Menzies in the cat leotard is burned into my retinas. Please, sweet death, take me now. And do you know what? I spared you guys from having to see that for, I don't know, three, four years, every, I don't know, I would say quarterly, David Menzies would say to me, Sheila, is it time? And I would say, no, it is not time. It may never be time. I hope it is never time for the world to see you in a cat leotard, scratching your butt against a pillar in a parking garage uh, with that horrifyingly cut out cat mask. Did he put his glasses on the cat mask? I never noticed that before. <laughs> um, I kept telling him, it's not now, David. Not now. Hopefully not ever. I, honestly, I wanted to save him from himself. I mean, how do you come back from this? Uh, but it's David Menzies, and we love him for this kind of stuff. And he really did prove a point. And we reached such uh, a place of absurdity in society that it was time to publish it. And uh, we did. And it will live in infamy forever as one of David Menzies' greatest, most ridiculous capers. The man truly suffers for his craft, doesn't he? And it's why we appreciate him so much. I think he's it's why he's a fan favorite. Well, everybody, that's the show for today. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks to everybody behind the scenes who makes the show work. Um, Olivia, is that everything? Okay, great. I guess I have to come up with a new sign-off tagline. For now, I'm going to stick with uh, 
my own actually. I'm going to tell you, don't let the government tell you that you've had too much to think. It looks like some of the opposition parties don't want to do a coalition. It looks like they want to sort of deny the results of the election. How's that going? We are now in the process of talking about this issue in Parliament. The Conservative Liberal Party, the Farmer Party, and the new party of Peter Omtzigt, the four of us would have a big majority in Parliament. 90% of the voters of all those four parties want us to work together. Still, it's not automatically in a normal a situation or country, we would have almost formed the government already. But some of those parties are hesitant. Some because they have lost the elections and believe that it's not their place now. Others because they believe that some points out of our party program against Islamization are uh, against our constitution and they don't want to work with a party who works against the constitution. It's not that far yet. It's a possibility. But I'm still um, hopeful that um, um, we have a chance to, uh, to form a coalition and a government.